Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me now to the Joseph story, and let's begin reading in chapter 39. I'd like to read a portion here and then move over toward the close of his life. 39, beginning with verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. And now turn over with me to uh, chapter 45, reading from the beginning of the chapter. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping, 
but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. <clears throat> he made me father to Pharaoh, the lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. Pray with me. Our Father, we would not dare turn to your word without turning first of all to you and asking you to give to us the gift of your Holy Spirit to interpret the word which he inspired for our own hearts and for our own lives for our own thinking, and for our own living. And so we pray that this morning somehow, even if it has to be in spite of a human voice, that we will hear a divine voice that gives to us the word which we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't need to tell you that the story we're dealing with is really an amazing story. And when it comes to Joseph and the life that he lived and the way he reacted to what he experienced in his life is a story that really, in a sense, is almost too good to be true. But uh, there are some negative parts in Joseph's story that need to be seen if we're to appreciate the positive conclusion that comes to it. And so I want to take time in the beginning this morning just to deal with some of the obvious things that... Uh, need to be faced before we see what happened to Joseph in the course of his life. And there were a lot of negatives because the context in which he began his life was an incredibly negative one. He came from a family in which there must have been perpetual, unbroken tension. You know, we are just now beginning to learn something of the damage that comes to a child who grows up in a home that is loaded with tension. But Joseph lived in one. You will remember the story of his father Jacob and his marital problems. When uh, his father Isaac said, you're not to marry one of the Canaanites. And Rebekah, his mother, said, you're not to marry one of these Canaanite women. Somehow or other, they knew that the future of their people depended upon their keeping their identity as a, a group who served the true and the living God. And their God was different from the gods of their neighbors. And so they sent Jacob away. You will remember how his ultimate father-in-law forced him to serve for seven years for his wife. And then when he got her, the morning after he came to and found out his father-in-law had given him the wrong one. Now, I can't feature anything that could be more devastating than that. And then you will remember he had to work another seven years to get the one that he thought his father-in-law had promised to him in the beginning. And so he spent 14 years working to get his wife. And then you will remember the tensions with his father-in-law. But more than that, you will remember the tensions within his own family. Because Jacob loved Rachel, but he really didn't love Leah. And Leah knew it. So the first thing you have is that you've got a wife who's loved and a wife who isn't loved. 
Now, it'd be bad enough to have two wives or two husbands as far as that's concerned. But nevertheless, to have one that is preferred, can you imagine how devastating that was to Leah? But the scripture indicates that God looks upon those that are discriminated against. And so he blessed Leah. And you will remember that she had four sons. While Rachel pined because she was barren, sterile, and could not give birth to a son. Which meant that she could not succeed at what a woman was supposed to succeed at in that world. And so you've got the bitterness in Rachel's heart that she can't have any children and you've got the bitterness in Leah's heart that her husband really doesn't love her. You'll remember that Rachel is so jealous of Leah that she gives her handmaiden, Billah, to her husband, and so he has two sons by Bilhah, so that her handmaid now has succeeded in what she hasn't been able to succeed at. Now, if you know the Abraham story with Hagar and Sarah, you know something of the jealousy that was there, where ultimately Sarah banished Hagar from the home. But this case, he can't banish them because she's the handmaiden of the wife he really does not love. So when uh, Rachel gives Billa to Jacob, Leah watches while Billa produces two sons, and so she gives her handmaid to Jacob. And the, the mess simply gets messier. Because you will remember that then Zilpah had two sons and then Leah had two more sons. So he's got ten sons by these three women and no son by the one that he wants a son from. And ultimately, you will remember that Rachel bears a child. She prays and God hears the prayer and gives to her Joseph. Now, can you imagine how pampered he was? Here is the one who is his father has waited for all this time. His mother has waited for all, all this time. And he's got these children that are really second-class citizens in the same family. And Joseph, the favored one, he is the son of the favored wife. And he is the preferred one of his father. And you see that in the coat of many colors, which gave him a distinctiveness that none of the rest of his brothers had. Now, you can imagine... Uh, it was not too difficult for Joseph, with all of that preferential treatment, to feel that he had a right to be sort of lord of the manor. He had a superior position to his brothers. So when he goes out to see Billa's and Zilpah's sons, you will remember that he comes back and he tattles. And he tells negative stuff about these four. And the end result was that those four hated him. Now, it's tragic when you have hatred anywhere, but it's much worse when you have it in the heart of a family. And then his treatment had made him so that there was a bit of the braggadocia in him. And so he has these dreams, and he's unwise enough that he tells his brothers and his father and mother these dreams. He tells about how he dreams of their sheaves bowing down to his, so that what he's saying is, in my dream, there comes a day when you will bow down to me. You can imagine how helpful that was to family peace. And then you will remember the one in which is even far worse. He says, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bow down to me. And Jacob at that time, at that point, expostulates and says, 
Are you expecting your father and your mother to bow down to you? Who do you think you are? But he simply thinks he's the favored son in the family, which is exactly what he is. And so the hatred intensifies from his brothers, and they are incredibly jealous of him. So the background is sent so that when one day Jacob sends him out to check on his brothers, when they see him coming, and there's some indication in the text that all of them were not together. They were doing their different things, and it may well have been that it was Billa and Zilpah's sons that saw him first, and so they said, here he comes, let's kill him. At that point, Reuben comes up. Now you must remember that Reuben is the firstborn. And in a family in that day, the firstborn had special privilege, but along with the special privilege, he had special responsibility. And so Reuben, when he realizes that he's in a group of men that are getting ready to kill the favorite son of his father, he's got to face his father when he gets back. So he says, well, let's don't kill him. Let's just put him in this, uh, in this cistern here. And he felt that he could after his brothers had gone about their business again, he could save him. Now, Reuben wanted to do something, I think, to make up his relationship with his father because we have this incredibly sordid story about Reuben, the firstborn, who had committed adultery with his father's concubine, with Bilhah, who was the mother of two of these brothers that hated him so intensely. So you can imagine there was tension between him and the firstborn, the leader of the family. If you'll read the story carefully, you will notice, and tonight we will comment on this, that by the time these guys get to Egypt, the second time Reuben is no longer the spokesman for the family, he has been replaced by Judah because of Reuben's dissipation of his place of responsibility in the family. Now at that point, Judah comes up, and Judah is fearful of shedding blood. I think there was in Judah a certain fearfulness anyway, and there were great serious consequences for shedding of innocent blood, and so they see these Ishmaelites coming, and so he says, why don't we just sell him to them, and they can take him into Egypt, and we'll be through with him. So he wants to solve the problem that way. And so they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites, or the Midianites, whichever name you want to use for them, Apparently, if you look in Judges, you'll find a passage where both of these names are given at the same time, and the indications are that the Midianites was a smaller group which apparently at that time came under the larger heading of Ishmael. And so you get an interchange at that point. But they sell him. Then when he's gone, they take that coat which they detested, they kill an animal and take the blood, and they drench his coat with blood, and then they take the coat to his father to tell him that their brother has been killed by a wild animal and now he's gone and so they lie their way through that. So you've got a family that's, that's permeated by hatred, permeated by jealousy, and permeated by deception. How'd you like to grow up in a family like that? And so this is where Joseph got his start. Now he has been sold to Potiphar, who is a high official in the Egyptian court. Now you, you must note that it's the Egyptian court. And remember that the Egyptian court was the center of the greatest world power in that day. 
There's an irony to me in the Scripture, and yet there's a beauty in the fact that God always is pushing some of His own to the centers of world power. And we'll come back to that. Because, you see, that's where God belongs. He belongs to be the center of all power. And so He may have to move them from the bottom of society, but if you'll find the center of world power, if you'll look deeply, you'll find somewhere there a presence that represents the Lord God, who is the sovereign over all. Now, Joseph is in Egypt, away from his family, away from everybody that he knows, absolutely alone. Or is he? There's a sense in which the 39th chapter could be entitled Emmanuel. <laughs> and you know the meaning of Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God is with us. Except in this case, it wasn't God with us, it was God with me, Joseph. I want you to look at the passage that we read in, 30, in 39. I want you to notice the use of the title, which in your translation is a title, Lord, and how it indicates the Lord was with Joseph. It's uh, incredibly repetitive. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, a captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Suddenly, bang, we are told, the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. He lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. So Potiphar put him over his house, everything that he owned except his wife and the food he ate. And then verse 8, from the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. And then if you'll move on down, look at verse 9 where he is speaking to the wife of Potiphar. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now notice, you've got a shift from the term Lord to God. Did you notice that? Pin that down and watch it very carefully. Now look at the conclusion of the story. And verse 20, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. There was no way he could keep from coming to the top. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, why? Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now, if you were reading the Hebrew text, that probably would be a little more significant to you than in reading the English text. Because if you notice, and I'm sure many of you are fully conscious of this, you'll notice that every time the word Lord occurs in this passage, and I think it's seven times successively, you will notice that it, it is always spelled with four capital letters. It is not a capital L with a little O and a little R and a little D. It is a capital L with a capital O and a capital R and a capital D. 
Now, what we know from that is that the Hebrew term which is behind that letter, that, that word which is all capitals, is not the Hebrew word Lord. It is the Hebrew name which God gave to Moses at the burning bush. When he said, I am that I am, tell him, and he gave him that what we call the tetragrammaton, the four-letter word, the name, the name Yahweh probably. We're not sure how it was pronounced. That's as close as the scholars can get to it. It is the personal name of God. Now notice that in every reference where it says that God was with him, it is Yahweh that's with him. But when he speaks to an Egyptian woman, he shifts from Yahweh to God, Elohim. Because, you see, Yahweh was the God of the Hebrews. And you're beginning to get the development that this God of the Hebrews is the God of the Egyptians, too. And he is the God of the whole earth. Today, the typical Old Testament scholar will tell you that you can only take from a passage in the Old Testament what the supposed writer of that passage understood it to be. But you see, the thing I'm convinced is that I attribute the Pentateuch to Moses. I'm sure he didn't write all of it because he didn't live through this period. He got the story from somebody else. But when it was written, there was another hand at work in all this, and that's the hand of God himself. And God, who inspired this word, saw to it that when it was given, it was clean enough that there's nothing here that will contradict what comes later. And in fact, if we have eyes to see, you can read these early stories, and you may not get it explicit, but you will get implicit here. So there, there's nothing here to contradict what comes, the larger, fuller revelation, but you get what you get here has within it implicitly that fuller revelation that is to come. Now, uh, it's interesting how Old Testament scholars deal with that passage in Genesis 1 when God has created everything except man, and then he says, let us make man, Adam, in our own image. It's interesting. You notice what he says? He doesn't say, I'm going to make. He says, let us make. And you get... Uh, in the first verse of Genesis 1-1, you get in the beginning, God. And the interesting thing is the word God is plural. And the verb is singular. Elohim bara. So you've got a, a, a plural subject and a singular verb. Now the Hebrew scholars will tell you that in that ancient world, they used the plural of majesty. A king would talk up for his country, he'd say we when he was speaking about what he was going to do. We. Now, that's legitimate. But what I notice is that there is nothing in this text that contradicts the fact that this is the Old Testament correspondence to John 1, which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and you get a basic foundation for the New Testament teaching of the doctrine of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Now, I think it is fair to interpret a part by the whole. And if uh, you'll just let me labor that for a minute. We get into problems when we interpret the whole by a part. 
I'm convinced that that's one of the major reasons for the denominations, the different denominations in the world. <laughs> we take certain texts and they become our text and we begin a kinlaw crowd. And another person takes a certain set of texts and you begin your crowd. And so you get the divisions that are among us. We are infinitely safer if we will take the difficult single texts and interpret them in terms of the whole rather than trying to impose the, on the whole of Scripture our own particular favorite verses. So you will find me dealing with this text a little differently than many of the biblical scholars and many of the books that you will find on the Bible in your public libraries. But now, I notice that what you have through the Joseph story is a very careful play on the personal name of God who is the God of Israel. And every time you're in Egypt dealing with Egyptians, you've moved from Yahweh, the personal name, to Elohim, which is the word known throughout that ancient world. The root, basically, Ael is the word for God. And so this is, this is a generic term which is used in the larger world. And you know, I notice that uh, Paul does something like that. You remember when he went to Athens and he stood up uh, to speak to the philosophers that were there? And he said, I notice that you have all sorts of altars around to your different gods. And you have one here to the unknown God. Now I want to tell you who he is. <laughs> so he takes the same approach when he is dealing with the pagans in Athens. So Joseph, when he speaks to the wife of Potiphar, uses the term Elohim or the word God. But when the text is speaking about Joseph and the secret of his success and his blessing, it is Yahweh, which is the Old Testament equivalent of the name Jesus in the New Testament. Now, look at 41, and you'll see the way the word Joseph uses the word God with Potiphar. Look at verse 16. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about. And then verse 28. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about. Verse 39, you get the same thing. And verse 52, you get it again. And so we have the story here of where a man who comes from the heritage of Abraham, that God that reveals himself more clearly in the days ahead in Moses, they is beginning to say, it is that personal God who is the secret of my life and my position and my success here. Now, when I read this passage over the years where it says, and the Lord was with Joseph, there's no explanation as to why God is with him. It doesn't say that Joseph merited it. It just simply says, God was with this slave boy in Egypt. And he blessed him and gave him remarkable success. Now, why is it that God blesses him? I have a couple of questions. One of them is, is this just favoritism on God's part? 
Does God like some people and He just picks them out and blesses them more than other people because He wants to play favorites with people? Is God like Jacob with a favorite son? Now, if you take this passage alone, you don't have an answer to that. But if you look farther in the Scripture, you begin to get a very specific and a very clear answer. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 1. You will remember that chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to Israel, winding up his career before he dies, and he is uh, preparing Israel for the day when he will be gone. So in verse 15 of the first chapter, you will find he takes the leading men of their tribes, the wise and respected men, and appoints them to have authority over the people of Israel. And he charged their judges at that time, you hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly whether the case is between brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien. Then he speaks very clearly, Moses, do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. So Moses says, among the people of God, you can't have partiality. Now look with me at uh, chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. Begin with verse 12 of chapter 10. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord Yahweh? There's the word, personal name. We know him by name. You know the lady that uh, <laughs> I told you about last night who uh, found Christ through the communion service in her Presbyterian church as she sat in the choir? I remember she came to this Bible class that we had. She's the one who raised the irritating questions at times. One day she turned to me and said, Now, Dennis, this love of Jesus bit nauseates me. Now, she said, loving God, I can understand that and appreciate that, but this love of Jesus bit just turns my stomach, it nauseates me. Now, you know, after that communion service she told me about, it was very interesting how she started talking about Jesus instead of God. Now, there's no conflict between the two, but isn't it interesting how Jesus draws God closer to you? And so there is an intimacy that comes because you know his name. You know, I can stand in any crowd and yell, Elsie. And there'll be one woman that'll turn. <laughs> I've got control over her. <laughs> but you ought to let me get in a crowd and let her yell, Dennis. Now, there may be other Dennises there, but there's one Dennis that pivots just like that. Because there's a relationship there. She belongs to me, I belong to her. Now, it's interesting how Jesus is the way God steps out of that third person and comes into the first and second person, belongs to us. Elsie feels that so intensely that at times she just like to talk about Jesus and never talk about God. But you can't do that because Jesus isn't all of God. God is bigger than Jesus, but Jesus is God. We're Trinitarians and we believe that. But it's in Him that, he, that God draws close. 
And it's in him that the Spirit draws close to us. So that's what you get in this personal name. And now, O Israel, you're the people who know God by personal name so you can call on him, and he's committed to you. What does Yahweh your God ask of you but to fear Yahweh your God? So you get the personal and the generic. To walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To Yahweh, your God, belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you. And say, here we're back to that story. He chose your forefathers and their descendants above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For Yahweh, your God, is God of gods. Your God is the God of all gods. And Yahweh of lords. He is the Lord of all lords. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Aren't you glad that our God is a God who doesn't show partiality? But keep on reading. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And do you know why that's in there? It's because the fatherless and the widow and the alien had no legal rights. Only a man could stand in the court. And you had to have a man to stand there to protect your rights. And a widow had no husband to stand there. And so God said, you better be careful how you treat widows because I'm their defender. That other woman over there who's married, her husband can defend her, but that widow, you better keep your hands off her and not take advantage of her because I defend her. And he says, that orphan who has no father, you better be very good to that orphan because that other kid over there has got a father who can take care of him, but I'm going to take care of that orphan. And I'll get you if you are not fair with that, with that child. And then the foreigner, he didn't have any legal rights at all. And God said, you'd be good to the foreigner. Because you see, you exist to carry a message to them. And I will be the defender of their rights. The great social passion of Christianity comes out of this, you see. He says, and you are to love those who are aliens. For you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear Yahweh your God and serve him. Hold fast to him. Take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. So, first of all, the scripture, if you take the whole, God has no favorites. Now, that's interesting when you talk about the doctrine of election, isn't it? Or when you talk about the doctrine of predestination. How do you explain the doctrine of predestination with it? It's very clear that Israel was a chosen nation. Now how can you have a chosen nation by a God who has no favorite? Hold that for a moment. That brings me to a second question. And that second question is, you wonder how much Joseph really knew. Now, when uh, this text was written, the guy who gave it to us intended to give us more than Genesis. So he didn't tell us everything about the play in the first act. 
you have subsequent acts to help you understand the first act. And if you ever sit through the old play and then sit through it a second time, you'll see far more in the first act than you did the first time you sat through it because you know what's taking place, more of what's taking place. Now, you wonder how much Joseph really knew. You remember we said last night that this God that Joseph heard about from his father and from his family was a God who speaks. And what is it that he says? You remember the first thing he said was, everything in this garden is yours. Enjoy it all. It's all yours. So he speaks to provide. You remember he said, stay away from that one tree, because if you eat it, there'll be deleterious effects and I don't want you hurt. And so he speaks to protect. I don't know about you, but I like these truths that are here. And then you'll remember when they eat the tree, he speaks to let them know they're going to have to live with the consequences of their act. And those consequences are negative. So he just lays the truth bare to them. But then there is a fourth thing. When he speaks, he promises. You remember after the flood, he said, I'll never curse the earth again this way. And you remember the first thing he said to Abraham? He said, I'll give you a son. I will give you a progeny. I will give you a land. And I will make you a means of blessing to the whole world. Now, it's interesting how often that is repeated in the book of Genesis. I think it is repeated enough that you can say that it is a basic assumption behind all of God's dealings with men in the book of Genesis. And that is that when he speaks, he promises. It is a promise of good. He promises progeny. He promises a land and nationhood, and he promises that they will be a means of blessing to the whole world. Now, what more could you ever ask from God? And all of this is promised. It's promised Abraham in 12.3. It's repeated in 18.18 at the story where he says next year this time Isaac will be born. And his name will be Isaac. You're aware, I'm sure, what the name Isaac means. It means he laughs. And the normal thing in the ancient world is that the subject of a name is not the person or a member of the family. It's God. When my son called me and told me he had a little girl, he named her Abigail. And the name Abigail, the Abbey is father, and the gale is joy. And so the name, my father, is my joy. But you know, the interesting thing is it's not talking about my son who's got a daughter, that he's the joy of his daughter. The name Abigail means my father. This one is my joy. So when the name Isaac is given to Abraham's son, God says, name him Isaac. And when he said, name him Isaac, which means he laughs, Abraham laughed in unbelief, Sarah laughed in unbelief, but God laughed for joy because the messianic line was in place. That story was now started that was going to redeem the world. 
That story was now started that was going to have a bunch of people like you and me at the cove rejoicing in the privilege of being a part of the family of God, you see. And so God rejoices in that. So that, that promise is given there. At Mount Moriah, when Abraham has laid Isaac on the altar and is ready to kill him, God says, don't touch him. And then he says, I'm going to give you a progeny. Extend that progeny through this boy. I'm going to give you a land, the land of Canaan. You're an alien in it now and don't have any rights here. One day you'll own it. That's what the story is about in the Middle East now. And then you will remember, he said, and you will be a means of blessing for the whole world. Let me tell you what I love. When God lays his hand on one individual, he has the last person in the world in mind. Did you hear me? When God laid his hand on you, he had the last person in the world in mind too. Because you see, that's the kind of God we have. He, has, he is not guilty of partiality. You get it in the Isaac story in 26.4. When Isaac has gone down to Abimelech because they're having a famine in Canaan, and he's there in Gerar with Abimelech, and God says to Isaac, don't go down into Egypt because stay in the land that I'm going to give to you, and he repeats the promise. This is to be your land. Your progeny will be great. You'll become a nation, and this land will belong to you. And you will be a means of blessing to the whole world. Chapter 28, Jacob at Bethel. Jacob scared to death. He's left home, doesn't know what's in front of him. He has this dream about the angels ascending and descending, and God speaks to him in that dream, and you get this repetition of the promise. Progeny, land, nationhood, and blessing to the whole world. So what you have implicit here is the conclusion of the gospel of Matthew. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. God never looks at a part without seeing the whole and thinking the whole, because that is the God of it all. And you see that case being built here in these ancient stories of a God who cares for the whole world. And his way of getting to the whole world is through a particular part. And he says, Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, I'm going to take you. And through you, I'm going to get that message that will go to the last person that exists in the earth. Let me, just to illustrate this from another passage, turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 49. And it's one of those passages that is called a servant of the Lord passage. Now, you have a very interesting thing in Isaiah, in that there will be passages that are called servant of the Lord passages that are about, and the servant is clearly the people of Israel. And you'll have passages where it's not about Israel as a whole, it's about the suffering servant, it's about the one that we call Jesus. And so you get this movement. In one place it's corporate, and in the next place it's individual. One place it's the nation, the people of God, and in the next place it's the person of God in Jesus. But look at 49. Listen to me, you islands. Now, how much did a Hebrew in, in Israel in 750 B.C. know about the islands of the earth? I grew up in eastern North Carolina. <laughs> Back so long ago that... Uh, not many people here could understand this, but you know, to get in and out of my 
town in eastern North Carolina, you had to go through big swamp, black swamp, bear swamp, rat swamp, or green swamp. It wasn't easy to get out, and it was harder for anybody to get in. You know how much we knew about the rest of the world? Now, how much did a Hebrew 750 years before Christ know about the islands of the earth? And listen to Isaiah. Listen to me, you islands. This little nation of Israel, what's happening here is relevant to every island in the world. Hear this, you distant nations. The servant is speaking, before I was born, Yahweh called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Isn't that fascinating language? He said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain for nothing. Yet what is due me is in Yahweh's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now Yahweh says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant. Why did he form me? Now get this. To bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. Because, you see, God's people have turned away from God. And so he says, my servant is to bring the people of God back to God. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. But catch this verse. I've never heard it preached on. I think it is an incredibly significant verse in the biblical story. It is too small a thing for you, my servant, to be my servant, to restore the tribe of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the end of the earth. Now let me sum that up. Did you know that revival is never enough? I'm a part of a sort of a brotherhood of people in this country that are crying out for revival in our country. I noticed that the latest issue of First Thing speaks about a renewal needing to come to our country. I noticed that George Will says he wrote an article on uh, 18th century England and said, John Wesley, through the women in England, saved England from gin. I love that line. <laughs> John Wesley, through the women in England, saved England from gin. Now, it would be nice if we could have a revival among women in this country, wouldn't it, that could save us men from our follies and so forth. But uh, George Will, crying out, he said, what this country needs is another John Wesley. Now, I love the fact that Catholic says that about a Methodist. A Methodist ought to say that about some Catholics, too, you see, some other Theresas and so on. But nevertheless, you'll notice that there is this cry for revival. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. He says to bring Israel back, to bring Jacob back to God. 
But he said, that's never enough. Because if they get back to God, the reason for getting them back to God is so the lost of the earth, the whole earth, can know about the true and the living God. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you need that text? Elsie and I worked for 18 years with Christian kids in a Christian college on a Christian college campus. You know, it's interesting what you learn about parents working with their kids. Let me tell you the kind of thing that got sort of painful to me. I always felt, you know, we got kids from, sorry to say, the best families in the country if not the best, at least among the very best. I'm not trying to say our school was better than the other Christian schools, but just simply say, in the Christian colleges, you expect to get the kids from the best families in the United States. You know what we found about kids from American evangelical homes? You sit down with one and say to him, what are you going to major in? And then he would, or she would tell you, then you'd say, if you were to do what your father and mother would be most pleased that you do it, if you do the thing to make them the happiest, what would you become? You know what the typical response was? Well, I'd be a professional person. I'd be a doctor. I'd be a lawyer. I'd be an educator. I'd be a business person. You know the one thing I almost never heard out of a kid? Oh. If I did the thing that would please my father and mother the most, I'd give my life for the same purpose that God's Son gave His life. I'd give it for the redemption of the world. And you know, whenever I got a kid who'd say that, he was different or she was different because they came from a different kind of home. I want to ask you what your kids dream about. I want to ask you what your grandkids dream about. You know, I notice in the Scripture that God seldom ever sends a preacher, an evangelist, to, Jerusalem, to uh, Egypt or to Babylon, it's only when you get to Paul that he goes to Athens or to Rome. You know where the prophets all go? They go to Jerusalem. Because if Jerusalem is not right, nothing is right. And the place to reach the world is not to start with the pagans. The place to reach the world is to start with you and me. Now you say, is that in the Joseph story? very strongly present, implicitly there. Why does God have Joseph there in Egypt at the center of world power so that the people of Israel can be saved through the famine that's there and they can come out of Egypt through the Exodus, through Sinai, into the land, and David can come and Christ can come. So I'd like to ask you about your missionary concerns today. Is it reflected in your budget? Is it reflected in your prayer life? 
see, that's what the story is all about. And you know, the interesting thing is, it's not a burden, it's a joy. And it's high privilege. Now, as we said, this message about the whole world is there. Favoritism? Chosen? Chosen for what? The interesting thing is that they're not chosen, as I understand the text, for their salvation. They're chosen for somebody else. And the election is not for their salvation. It's for somebody else's salvation. But you see, we've tended to take that and turn it this way. When God chose them so the ends of the earth could hear the gospel of Christ. And so there is no favoritism here. And the interesting thing is, when they were chosen, they were chosen to carry an incredible burden. There are special privileges in being the people of God. <laughs> As I was thinking about this, I thought of a story which I heard from an old preacher who came from here in western North Carolina. He was an evangelist for years when I was younger. And... Uh, really a remarkable man. Uh, but he told me back during the Second World War, he was coming down the Outer Banks, coming down to Portsmouth and to Norfolk, and he was had to make his appointment. He had to catch the ferry, ferry that would take him across to Portsmouth at 6 o'clock. And he said he was under pressure time-wise, and so he was holding it right to the speed limit. That's the, way, the kind of person he was. And uh, it was during the war, and as he drove along, he noticed him out here in no man's land there in eastern Virginia, he noticed a GI standing, hitchhiking. So he picked the hitchhiker up, and they started talking. And as they were going along, Dr. Church told me, he said, you know, never happened to me many times. But he said, suddenly I had this urge to stop. And he said, uh, I sort of pushed it away, but it wouldn't go away. He said it got stronger. And it got strong enough that he said, finally, I just pulled over on the berm and stopped. And just as I reached up to turn the key off to find out, to check if there was anything wrong with the car, he said the front left tire blew out. So he said, I got out of the car and got the jack. And he said, I had the front end jack halfway up before that GI moved. He said, uh, Finally, he got out and came around slowly and looked at me and said, Mister, did you know that tire was going to blow out? He said, well, no. Well, he said, why did you stop? Well, he said, son, the Lord told me to. Said the kid just shook his head. He said, man, I'm not a Christian, but there's nothing in the world I wouldn't give for your connection." Now, there are special privileges in being the chosen of God, but why are we chosen? So he could sit back down in that car and witness to that G.I. and tell him about what it means to walk with God. But what did it mean for Israel to be chosen? You read the story, and you'll find that it meant a significant suffering because no one is ever saved until somebody else hurts. And you know who it is that's supposed to hurt? It's not the one who needs to be saved. It's the person who's the mediator, the intercessor, the one who stands between. 
And so God is choosing a people, and he's given them a sense of destiny, and uh, that they know that they have a reason for existing. Now, in reading the story, pay special attention to where the patriarchs are all buried. We'll come back to this. But you'll notice that Jacob said, don't bury me down here in Egypt because I'm not home. Joseph said to his brothers, don't you bury me down here in Egypt in bombs because this is not our destiny. They had a sense of destiny. And you know, I believe every believer ought to have a sense of destiny. You ought to have within you a sense that you're not here by accident. You're here by divine purpose and God's got a reason for you to exist and God's got a mission for you. And it is significant and it will be meaningful to somebody else other than you. And your meaning in life will be the fact that you have been a means of blessing to another. Now, uh, our time's gone. But let me say, what's happening in Joseph's mind? as he sold into slavery? Hated by his brothers? Finds himself in Egypt? He gets thrown in prison for keeping pure and chaste? He uh, then ultimately rises and he becomes the second man in the most powerful nation in the world. And he speaks, the text speaks about him and uses that personal name while he in dealing with Egyptians speaks generically about God. I want to say, let me just give you quickly. We don't have time to develop them. But what you have is, I think that Joseph, some way or other, is developing an intimate relation with the God of his father. And that's the reason at the end of his story he can look at his brothers and say, you meant it for evil, but there's somebody bigger than you whose hand was in this whole thing. And he meant it so that you could be saved. And so our people could be saved. So a remnant, it may be the first time that word remnant occurs in the Old Testament. He says, so a remnant could be saved. And the Old Testament thesis is that the world is to be reached through the remnant which sums itself up in Christ. So the first thing, he's developing somewhere in this life a knowledge of the God that his father has told him about, the God of his grandfather and his great-grandfather. But he is learning that the God of his father is not only the God of the Hebrews, he's the God over all the world. And he's learning that that God who is specially known to the Hebrews, his people, and they are to know his name. Now, he is the God of all the world. He is the Lord of human history. And he's learning that he's the Lord of his history. So he says, I was in his hands, not yours. And he let you send me here. You couldn't do anything to me that he would not permit. And he has permitted it for good. And so, the God who is now, he knows to be the Lord of all history, is the God of his history. And you know, if that's true, how are you bitter against God? And so there is no bitterness in Joseph. An amazing story. And the incredible thing is, there's no grumbling. Read the story carefully. Let me say, if anybody ever had a reason for grumbling, it seems to me that Joseph had it. But you don't find him. He just keeps going, and God cares for him. Some way or other, he has found the power that the New Testament says you can't have apart from the Holy Spirit. 
Paul just dropped that line in 1 Corinthians 12. No man can say that Jesus is Lord except for the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? When the circumstances in life turn wrong, he can help you to say, God means it for good. I'm in his hands, and they're good hands. In our family, we have a phrase when things get tough. We say, we're in his hands, and they're good hands. You know how strong the Bible is against grumbling? If you'll read 1 Corinthians 10, a passage which has influenced me, because Paul interprets the Old Testament by what Paul knows in the New Testament, so he uses the fuller story to understand what happened back with Israel. He says they were guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of adultery. They were guilty. But one of the things is they tested God, and then he says, and they grumbled. They grumbled. And so he said, God punished them. Now I want to ask you, can you live through adversity without grumbling? What did Paul do when they threw him in prison in Philippi? At the middle of the night, he and his buddy were singing praises to God. What do you get in the first chapter of Philippians? He's in prison. He's like Joseph was. And he says, I want you to know that all that's happened to me has happened for the furtherance of the gospel. And so he rejoices in it. But before I close, I want to give you a poem from a lady who lived in the French court back in Louis XIV's day. Her name was Madame Guillaume. She had a hunger for God, and she found a French Catholic priest who probably was the most brilliant preacher in Paris at the time who had a heart for God. And so she sought God and came to know him so intimately that she said it's possible for you to know him apart from the priest and apart from the sacrament. You can know him directly, immediately. And so they threw her in prison because of that. And as she sat in prison, listen to this. A little bird I am, shut off from the field of air. And in my cage I sit and sing to him who placed me there. Well pleased a prisoner to be, because my God, it pleases thee. Isn't that magnificent? A little bird I am, sitting in a prison in Paris, shut off from the fields of air, and in my cage I sit and sing to him who placed me there. Well pleased a prisoner to be, because my God, it pleases thee. Now, the interesting thing is she knew about Christ. She had the privilege of reading the New Testament. The incredible thing about Joseph is he never heard of Christ. He never saw a New Testament. But somehow or other, he had come to the place where he said, I can trust the God in whose hand I am. And he's good 
and he's sovereign. And he will let nothing come to hurt me. I didn't say let nothing come to pain me. He will let nothing come to hurt me. And out of the pain, he will bring redemption. Now, little wonder that we uh, think highly of Joseph. Because he's a model for us all.